Just how historically accurate are the biblical accounts of Jesus' birth? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Monday, December the 22nd of 2008, and I want to start off by wishing you guys a Merry Christmas. I hope you guys are uh, looking forward to spending some time with your families and with your loved ones and celebrating the birth of our Savior, the greatest gift ever. Uh, that we've received from God, and the the greatest sign of His love that we uh, that we can possibly imagine. But anyway, I want to welcome you guys and and thank you for joining us, especially those of you who are joining us for the first time. Uh, maybe you're listening to this because it has a catchy title, or maybe you're listening to it because uh, that's what you think that uh, that Christmas is a myth. And so, um, you know, usually on Mondays, what we do is we cover, uh, you know. Uh, part of Romans. That's what we we do on Mondays is Romans. But this week we're doing something special for you guys. We're doing Don't Myth Christmas. So anyway, we'll get started with that in just a moment. But, you know, I just want to say Merry Christmas to you guys and uh, thank you guys for listening and for supporting our ministry here this year. It's been an awesome year. Uh, We've reached almost 200,000 people. We're closing in on 2 million downloaded messages. Unbelievable. But praise the Lord. You know, it's just really, uh, it's really a sign of his greatness that, uh, that we've had that kind of success. So anyway, I was supposed to be flying to Las Vegas uh, right now, but uh, our flight got canceled. Um, I guess there are flights being canceled all over the United States. And so, uh, I don't know, my wife said, well, you know, maybe somebody needed to hear this message while they're flying today. So, you know, if that's the case, God bless you. I, I hope that this helps you out. So uh, anyway, we're catching a flight later on. They uh, they put us on a flight about six or seven hours later than our original plan. But, uh, you know, we're just happy to be able to go out to Las Vegas and spend time with, uh, with my parents. I'm excited about that. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Father God, uh, we just want to thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much uh, for the, the gift that you gave us that we celebrate in this season, the gift of your son becoming flesh, becoming one of us so that he could live among us and so that he could bear the punishment for our sins, knowing that that was what his mission was. So we thank you and we give you all the glory. Lord, I just pray that you will help us to understand the Bible better and to understand how to defend the Christmas season this year in order that we can glorify you and bring glory and honor to you. We love you. And we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that many of you have noticed that Christmas is the one time of the year that Christianity and Christians come under the greatest attacks. I mean, this is the one time of the year that we really uh, bear the brunt of the world's anger toward God. Um, At least that's how it is in the United States, and obviously I really can't speak for other countries. But of course, you know, there's the the typical modern thing where, you know, we don't say Christmas because we might offend someone. Uh, Instead, you know, workers are are forced, and I I do say forced because uh, they face disciplinary action if they don't, but they're forced to say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas, just in case someone doesn't celebrate the Christ 
Mass. And of course, Mass is what we refer to uh, to Catholic service as, and that's what they refer to their services as. They call it going to Mass. So that's where the word Christmas comes from. It's a Christ Mass. You know, just recently in the state of Washington, a group of atheists found a, a Christmas display and decided to put their own display right next to it with a, a big sign that reads, there are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. And then it goes on to say, religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds, end quote. And you know, I honestly find that to be pretty ironic, considering here they are, you know, bashing religion, and uh, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that atheism is a religion. So I can't help but wonder if the, the brilliant person who wrote that realizes that they were condemning their own worldview with those words. They're saying that religion uh, hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Well, atheism is a religion. Another example of uh, some some attacks that Christians and Christianity have come under this Christmas season is from the American Humanist Association. Uh, They ran an ad campaign on buses in Washington this year, putting up signs that read, Why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. And the question is, who determines what's good and what's not good? I mean, if good is defined by personal opinion, then we're free to think that uh, going on a shooting spree at the local mall is a good thing. If, uh, if quote-unquote, good is defined by personal opinion, then it would only be a matter of opinion to say that Mother Teresa was a better person than Adolf Hitler. The fact is, there must be something above and beyond humanity which defines what is good and what is, well, not good. Otherwise, it's just a matter of opinion. And the the ultimate assault on Christianity this year, uh, you guys might have heard about it, maybe you haven't, it's kind of been swept under the rug, but uh, the, the ultimate assault on Christianity this year was the fact that Playboy magazine put a porn star dressed like the Virgin Mary on the cover of its December Mexican edition. Now that is an all-out assault on Christianity, if nothing else is. And, you know, these are all uh, attacks and and assaults that are easily recognizable and which, you know, we can just kind of walk around and and not really uh, pay a whole lot of attention to. And, uh, you know, these attacks just demonstrate that nothing is new under the sun. You know, the world hates God and uh, and takes every opportunity that they have to strike out at him, uh, never mind the fact that they make complete fools of themselves in the process. However, these attacks on our faith are pretty ineffective because they come from the enemy's ranks. You know, they're, they're outside of Christianity. I'll have you know, however, that the enemy has a much more effective strategy. And it's the same strategy that you'll find in human combat by infiltrating the enemy's ranks. The enemy is trying to infiltrate our ranks. So what I'm saying is that there are pastors, there are theologians out there who have been educated in our best seminaries and who hold all these prestigious degrees and awards, but who hate God, who hate our Bible, and who work to undermine Christianity as a whole. How? By teaching their congregants and by teaching their students that the Bible is mythological. Yes, there really are churches out there that teach this, and this produces Christians who are utterly confused about Christianity because they're too young and too fragile in their faith to distinguish between false doctrine 
and true doctrine. And the result is that we have this overabundance of what I refer to as history channel Christians who aren't all that sure about whether Christianity is legitimate in the things it has historically claimed. And of course, if you turn on the history channel and watch anything about Christianity, you know what I'm talking about. But you know, when you go through the Old Testament, you find scores of miracles, all these miracles, especially in the account of the Hebrew people being delivered from slavery out of Egypt. And Oddly, you know, these miracles are rarely said to be mythological by these, uh, you know, academic people, by these theologians. Instead, what they do is they look for these natural scientific explanations for the events described in the Bible. Uh, They'll say something like, you know, did God really part the Red Sea? Well, of course not. Instead, what happened is this or that. You know, they'll say the Israelites went across the ocean in a low tide, and when the Egyptians came through, the tide came in and swept the Egyptians away. It only looked like God parted the sea, but there's really a natural scientific explanation. Or so they say. Uh, If you've ever wondered if this is actually the case with the parting of the Red Sea, try watching the documentary called The Red Sea Revealed. Uh, This is one of the most underrated videos pertaining to Christian evidences on the market. Uh, I would strongly, strongly encourage you guys to tell your local Christian bookstore to get this video in stock because you will be amazed at what they reveal in, uh, in in that documentary. But the fact is that very few miracles from the Old Testament are deemed to be mythological by these so-called scholars. But then you get to the story of Jesus, and you hear, oh, well, that must be myth, because virgins don't have babies. And there are really only a couple ways that people can explain this in a natural and scientific manner. Of course, some people will simply deny that Mary was a virgin. Instead, they'll claim that she was raped or um, that she married Joseph because they were engaged in you know, premarital sex and he got her pregnant. And of course, the person who argues this way will go on to read the Bible and they'll have no explanation for how Jesus could possibly claim to be God and then to have backed up those claims by performing one miracle after another, all of which occurred in front of tens or hundreds or sometimes even thousands of onlookers. And they can't explain why legal experts would go on, uh, Harvard law professors would go on to determine that each of the four gospel narratives in scripture are just different enough to make it clear that the authors were not copying each other, but not so similar that there would be any reason to suspect that the authors of the gospel narratives got together and decided to uh, basically make up this story about what they had seen. And if you're interested in that, there's a book on our recommended reading list on BibleStudyPodcast.org called The Testimony of the Evangelists, written by Simon Greenleaf, who was a Harvard law professor who took the four gospels and and saw the differences and the similarities and said this is exactly what we would expect from witnesses who are telling the truth. And in fact, the person who rules out the miraculous and says, you know, Jesus couldn't have been born of a virgin, the person who rules out the miraculous a priori can't make any sense of the New Testament, to be honest. I mean, you know, the Bible tells us uh, in 1 Corinthians that 500 people witnessed the risen Christ, and there's simply no scientific or naturalistic way to explain that, period. You know, taking the anti-supernatural highway is one way to explain the the birth of Christ, the the virgin birth of Christ, but that anti-supernatural highway quickly turns into a dead-end road. Well, the other way around accepting the virgin birth of Christ is to claim that it's just a myth. It didn't really happen. 
So let's go ahead and take a look at some of the mythological arguments pertaining to the birth of Jesus and some of the arguments used to dismiss the virgin birth. The first one is it's argued that the virgin birth of Christ is obviously mythological because the Apostle Paul never mentions it. Instead, the argument goes, uh, you know, the idea that Christ was born of a virgin is a late addition, uh, which explains why the gospel narratives include it, but Paul's epistles don't. Instead, the argument goes that Paul's writings imply that Jesus was born of a natural conception and birth, since Paul writes in, uh, for example, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus was born of a woman. Further, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. So according to this line of reasoning or, or this argumentation, Paul's writings imply that Jesus' birth was a normal and a natural one. And in response, we, we have to point out that Paul's letters don't necessarily imply that Jesus had a normal, natural birth. We agree that Jesus was born of a woman, like Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and we agree that he was a descendant of David, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. However, Paul's letters never refer to Joseph. The lineage of the father was a big deal for the Jews, and Paul being a Jew, a Jewish scholar, he would have known that the father is a significant piece of the son's identity. And that's why in the book of Matthew, uh, for example, Simon Peter is referred to as Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of. So the father was a significant part of the son's identity. Paul never once referred to Jesus as having an earthly father. Instead, at the very best, this would be an argument from silence. However, I think it, you know this argument even fails at that level, considering that Paul consistently refers to Jesus as the son of, not Joseph, but of God. We find that in, uh, and this is a long list, get ready if you don't believe me, Romans chapter 1 verse 3 uh, and verse 4 and verse 9, chapter 5 verse 10, chapter 8 verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 19, Galatians chapter 1 verse 16, chapter 2 verse 20, chapter 4 verse 4, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, and there are more in Hebrew if you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. So the argument that Paul never referred to the virgin birth of Christ, it, it just doesn't work because it doesn't lead to a necessary conclusion. Instead, the evidence from Paul's letters indicates that he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He never once mentioned Joseph. And further, this argument presupposes that Paul's letters uh, all predated the gospel narratives. And this, too, is just an unsubstantiated claim, and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. The evidence supports a very early date. For Matthew, for example, that was the first book written. Uh, who were the very first Christians? They were Jews. Well, who was the book of Matthew addressed to? Jews. Coincidence? I think not. There's a lot of evidence to support the belief that the first book of the New Testament that was written was the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, there's a great book on our recommended reading list on BibleStudyPodcast.org called Why Four Gospels by, uh, I forget his first name, last name is Black, but that's a book that, uh, that I would definitely recommend if you're interested in looking at this. And of course, the book of Matthew also reports that Jesus was born of a virgin. First book written in the New Testament tells that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, why would Matthew include that in his narrative? It's because he was writing to Jews who were expecting the Messiah to be born 
of a virgin. Why were they expecting the Messiah to be born of a virgin? Isaiah 7.14, which says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. Now, the skeptic will tell you that the Hebrew word, which gets translated as virgin here, actually refers to just a young woman and not necessarily a virgin. However, it's clear that the Jews had traditionally understood uh, this verse in Isaiah to mean virgin, uh, not maiden, which is what the what, what the argument is, that it should be translated maiden. But that's evidenced by the fact that the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which existed long before Jesus was born, but the Septuagint used the Greek word for virgin here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And further, the Hebrew word never refers to a woman who has married or who has had intercourse. And that's, a, that's just a totally different word. So the objection that Paul's writings, which predated the Gospel of Matthew, according to this line of, of argumentation, this just totally falls short, and it doesn't fit with the evidence. Instead, the evidence clearly supports the early date of Matthew, and Paul never refers to Joseph or any other earthly father of Jesus. Now, Another argument that you might get when somebody's trying to argue that uh, that you know the birth of Christ is a myth is that only Matthew and Luke record the birth of Jesus. And with that in mind, how reliable can they really be if neither Mark nor John mention it? They never mention the virgin birth of Christ. Wouldn't it be such a significant event that you should find it in each of the gospel narratives? And further, Matthew's and Luke's narratives contain genealogies which don't match up. So how credible can these genealogies really be? And again, you know, we just have to look at the purpose for each one of these narratives, for for Luke's narrative and for uh, Matthew's narrative and for the narratives of uh, Mark and John as well. For Matthew, he mentioned the genealogy because he was writing to a Jewish audience. One of the prophecies of the Messiah was that he would come from the line of, of David. So it was necessary for Matthew to identify Jesus as a descendant of David, which he did immediately in his book. He starts with the first, you know, the the first thing you read in his book is the genealogy. And Matthew makes it clear in this genealogy that Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, but that he wasn't the biological father. And how does he make that clear? Well, when we look at the genealogy in the opening verses of Matthew, we find several women mentioned, four of them, in fact. Uh, Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, and Bathsheba in verse 6. And in each of these instances, the name of the father precedes the name of the mother. And in each case, Matthew repeatedly writes, the father of. But then when he gets to Mary, however, it doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Instead, it only notes that Joseph was the husband of Mary. And according to Jewish custom, that still would make Jesus a descendant of David because he came from the house of Joseph. Uh, Jesus would have been known as Yeshua bar Joseph. Also, it's just it's very obvious that Matthew doesn't list every single person in his genealogy which links Jesus to David. There would have been far more than just 14 generations between David and Jesus. And why is that? Well, answering this requires some knowledge of Hebrew numerology. In Hebrew numerology, the name David adds up to 
14. So there's certainly some symbolism that Matthew was intending to communicate to his original audience because he includes 14 names linking Jesus to David. And of course, Matthew begins his narrative by writing the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we know that David wasn't a son of Abraham. Uh, He came much later after Abraham. But what we find is that Matthew wasn't intending to fill in all the people linking uh, Abraham to David or uh, David to Jesus. Instead, what we find is that there are three sets of 14 generations. And again, 14 is the number of David's name. So that explains a little bit about uh, Matthew's genealogy. Next, let's take a look at Luke's narrative. Why does Luke include a genealogy of Jesus in his narrative? Well, it's because Luke was a historian. In fact, Luke is recognized by modern historians as one of the best historians of the first century, and there's never been a shred of evidence to contradict anything That Luke wrote, either in the Gospel narrative of Luke or in the book of Acts. And archaeologists have even used Luke's descriptions of, of events and things, especially from Acts, to help them find things and places. That's how detailed he was. Luke didn't just take anyone's word at face value, though. This is made abundantly clear in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So Luke wasn't just going to take hearsay. As a doctor who was well-educated, he knew better. So he did what any person who knows a thing about research would do. He went directly to the source. Again, he said that they were eyewitnesses from the beginning. So he went and he interviewed these eyewitnesses who were eyewitnesses from the beginning. And it's pretty obvious when you read through Luke's narrative that he gathered quite a bit of information directly from none other than Mary herself. Well, how do we know that? It's because Luke's narrative reveals more about Mary, her history, her personality, her character, um, things she said. It reveals more about Mary than any other book in the entire New Testament. In fact, this is the only place where we find a record of the song that Mary sang in praise to God upon learning that she was going to be giving birth to the Messiah. That's in uh, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55 of Luke's narrative. And there is just way more detail in Luke than there is in the narrative by Matthew. Uh, And Luke's narrative of the birth of Jesus is almost entirely from Mary's perspective. So with that in mind, it's no surprise that the genealogy that Luke includes in his narrative uh, in chapter 3 verses 24 to 38 was supposed to be different from Matthew's. Luke's genealogy is much more precise, including 20 names prior to Abraham. So one response to why the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are different is because Luke provides more detail, while Matthew leaves a lot of names out. But I believe that the the more accurate response is that Luke's genealogy of Jesus is actually Mary's side, while Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's side. Note that in verse 23 of uh, chapter 3 of Luke, Luke doesn't note that Jesus was the son of Joseph, but he notes that Jesus was, quote, supposed as the son of Joseph. Luke then tells us that Joseph is the son of Eli. But wait, 
Matthew told us that the father of Joseph was named Jacob. Well, that's because Eli was actually the father of Mary, which makes Joseph Eli's son-in-law. And note that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, Matthew specifically states that Jacob begot Joseph. But in Luke's genealogy, it doesn't say that Eli begot Joseph. Instead, it says that Joseph is the son of Eli. Now, there's something that gets lost in translation, however. In the Greek, we find that the definite article appears in the genitive form before every name in the genealogy except one, that being Joseph. And for that reason, it's reasonable to conclude that the term son of Eli is being used loosely here as a means of expressing that Joseph was Eli's son-in-law. See, there was no term to designate son-in-law. Instead, the son-in-law was simply referred to as son. And Luke makes the distinction clear by leaving out the definite article in the genitive form before Joseph's name here. And further... I have to wonder, you know, for those who claim that there's an inconsistency between Matthew's and and Luke's genealogies, just how dumb do you think the early church was? Uh, Do you really think that they wouldn't have noticed that there were different genealogies? And do you think that they would have canonized both books anyway? Please. So, one last question, and that is, why don't Mark or John include mention of the virgin birth of Christ? Well, it's because those books were intended by Mark and John to be evangelistic, not historical. Uh, They are historical, but they were intended to be evangelistic. In Mark's narrative, one of the first things we read about is Jesus claiming to be God by healing the paralytic who gets, you know, lowered in through the roof in in chapter 2 of Mark. Uh, Mark wants to convert his audience to Christianity by convincing them that Jesus is the incarnate God. And Mark's narrative was written to Gentile Roman Christians who didn't know or, uh, honestly, who probably didn't care who Jesus' family consisted of. The genealogies weren't important to the Romans, not like they were to, uh, to, to a historian like Luke or to somebody who's writing to a Jewish audience like Matthew. So Mark and John both wanted to convince their readers to believe what was necessary for salvation. And believing in the virgin birth of Christ isn't necessary for salvation. So that's why they don't mention it. In closing, friends, don't make the mistake of mything Christmas. The virgin birth is supported by more evidence than we need in order to believe that it all happened exactly as it was recorded. We can trust that our Bible is historically and factually accurate, even in the description of Jesus being born to a virgin. And for that reason, if for no other, don't myth Christmas. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, Thank you so much that your uh, that your word is true, and that there's just such an abundance of uh, of evidence to support it. Lord, we just want to give you all the praise and all the glory this season, as we remember the greatest gift of all that was given to us. Thank you so much for loving us and for teaching us how to love you. Lord, I just pray that this message will strengthen people in their walk with you, and I pray, Lord, that you will help us to defend your word. We love you, and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys for listening. I am getting on my way to Vegas here pretty soon, but I hope you guys have a Merry Christmas. I hope you guys are blessed uh, this season, and I hope you guys get to spend some great time with your family and and create lots of memories. If you guys have any questions about this lesson or or any other, of course, uh, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And uh, 
Anyway, I'll be happy to help you out however I can. But anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.